You are listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. That's right, digital noise. Wait, that's what we're doing? What? Oh, never mind. I forgot what I was doing. <laughs> I guess we're doing digital noise. Some other podcast? What did, podcast did you think you were here for, Marco? Well, I'm going to be uh, totally honest in uh, full disclosure. I've had a few beers. I know. Where am I? <laughs> I could tell because you were so joyous when you came <laughs> yes, you were, that's right. You were giggly. I was like, yeah, Marco's had a few. <laughs> I'm a happy drunk. It's be all grateful. Right. Being being drunk on podcast is a proud tradition at one of us. There you go. I will remain here sober and and fu- uh, fully uh you know full of water and and look at you with great envy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're here to talk about all the Blu-rays and DVDs that come out, and we've got a nice little list here, the good mix of different types of oh, titles. Yeah. Once again, I know. Sorry for you guys have heard this a billion times, but please go to the actual one of us net page. Click on the digital noise entry for this show that is if you're you know you might be listening to our itunes account or something but check out the page you will like one of these titles you want to buy it please use our amazon links on that actual page to buy that product if you do we get a kickback in fact if you buy anything from amazon and you start from our links we get a kickback so please that is extremely helpful as even more helpful if you really love digital noise or you really love one of us.net and you want to keep this going which is tough it's expensive running the site no question then the best way to do that is to become a subscriber. There's lots of bonus podcasts that uh, come out as a subscriber. In fact, now uh, on Friday we'll be coming out, assuming nothing goes wrong with scheduling at the last minute, the first episode of the new season of The Original Gentleman, which I know people have been champing at the mouth to hear. But there's also lots of commentaries. There's uh, at the various different levels like Time Lord, you get tons of commentary tracks to movies. Uh, Even Red Shirt, the lowest level, you get uh, a weekly movie and TV news uh, show with re- trailer reviews. So yeah, lots of reasons to do it. But the number one reason to do it is just because you, that's what keeps the site going. So with no further ado, on to the, the reviews. reviews. And we're going to start off with an odd little film that I originally yeah. saw at, I want to say South by Southwest. I think it was South by, it may have been Fantastic Fest. I get it all mixed up in my head. Called Buster's Mal Heart. Although this came out in 2016, apparently it had been made a couple, uh, like at least a year before that. And my one issue with this film really is that, okay, it stars Rami Malek. You know, we all, you know, love him, the odd looking guy who really skyrocketed to fame with the show Mr. Robot. Mr. Robot. Yeah. The unfortunate thing is even Buster's Mellow Heart was made before that season came out or, you know, or even he had read the vinyl scripts. But there are some very similar things that happen in the twists to this movie to Mr. Mm. Robot that I was like, oh, man, <laughs> and I, only I, to find out it was just an unhappy coincidence. Uh, yeah, this was written and directed by Sarah Adina Smith and uh, an artist who I'm not familiar with, but I'm definitely curious to see what she has next coming up, because this is really an interesting little piece. It, this is the kind of movie that you ask yourself, 
how the hell did this get made? It was shot in like 18 days, and it doesn't look it. It definitely has a much bigger budgeted feel. And again, you were right about Robbie Malek being the sort of star attraction of this. He is the main reason to watch this uh, he, movie. He is the protagonist. He is the one who's on screen pretty much in every shot. Everything is more or less from his point of view. When we first meet him, he's a mountain man with a huge beard and long hair who's on the run from the authorities who survives winter by breaking into people's vacation homes in remote communities and living off their stuff for a couple of days and then eventually like taking a shit on something they own, which is if odd. he makes if they make him mad. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he calls into radio talk shows where he, where they've given them the nickname Buster to talk about crazy conspiracy sounding stuff about the inversion coming at the end. Yeah. Of the millennium. Well, when we see and then we cut back to seeing him at sort of earlier in his life where he is a young man who's got a wife. He's got a child. He's sort of living with his uh, in-laws. They're a very religious family. He's really, you know, it's one of those movies where you get little pieces of the puzzle as it moves along. You start to get a little bit of this guy's backstory. And really, this is a kind of a movie about a man who's, uh, I don't think this is a spoiler, he's basically losing his mind. Yeah, that and, becomes apparent know, very It, it becomes very apparent. He, well, one the fact day that he, you know he's going to turn into this mountain man right from the get-go who's, like, spouting off conspiracy theories. And, and, and the story is, how does he get from this mild-mannered guy working as a hotel clerk on uh, the de- on the graveyard shift yeah. to this sort of wanted fugitive? And you see a uh, even more than that, he's also having visions of being lost at sea. Yeah. Uh, you know, mountain manned up still, but lost in a life raft at sea. And as it goes along, you're not sure even if that part of it is even real or like a dream. And everything gets much more confusing when he meets DJ Qualls as a guy named Brown, who is a con- conspiracy-obsessed drifter, who is the one who starts filling his head with all yeah. this sort of well, conspiracy theory stuff. Yeah, but as you see, he's... The character of Jonah, which is the character's actual name, he's nicknamed Buster, but his name is Jonah. The Rami Malek character, we actually see him manning this, you know, his station, you know, at this hotel late at night. He's already listening to talk radio. He's already, you know, kind of dissatisfied with his marriage and his state in life. He dreams of owning a piece of property where they can kind of live off the land and kind of go off the grid. So some of those ideas are already there. But then he meets a DJ Qualls character yeah. who is, and this is an interesting point in the story, is that it's established that this is in the late 90s. And he yeah, meets a guy up who to is, the dreaded 2000. It is the Y2K thing. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. It's kind of a, you know, going backwards. Uh, and, and again, the DJ Qualls character is this guy who's like off the grid. He's conspiracy theorist. Yeah, telling him, you got to get off the grid, yeah. man. They're going to, when 2000 comes, it's going to change everything and they're going to yeah. come for you. But he doesn't speak to him about the inversion. The inversion he's getting from some weird prophet uh, that he's watching on TV late yeah. at night. And all of these ideas kind of just jumble in his head until he kind of goes on this really weird trajectory. This is kind of a classic, uh, unreliable narrator type of story. Uh, not the only one we have to deal with this week, by the way. No. But he's sort of an unreliable narrator. And one of the things that uh, Director Smith does that's quite interesting is that, you know, you see that he, there are a couple of planes of reality that this film is dealing with. It doesn't tell you what you should or should not believe in. Yes. And where Rami Malek really just, really just proves what a good actor he is, is that he plays that ambiguity. He plays a guy who is sympathetic, 
who has a loving family, who genuinely cares about them. And you don't want to see him turn into this right. other guy. But you also see that other side of him that is mentally breaking down. It's a tour de force performance. It's the best part of the movie. And it's one of those films that kind of leaves you scratching your head at the end, questioning what was real, what wasn't. Uh, you know, this is not unlike, say, uh, you know, uh, like Swiss Army Man. Yeah, or it, even Donnie Darko. Donnie Darko. Yeah. Uh, you know, films that, you know, it's not as crazy or surreal or weird as those movies necessarily. But it has its fair share of that here. Yeah, and it leaves you wondering, wait, did I, you know, is can I believe what I just saw? Or is this something else? I mean, I, I guess, like, here, I'm like, this is an interesting film, but one that I never became emotionally invested with, unlike those two films. Um Rami Malek, as much as it's a great performance, his character always kind of keeps you at an arm's length, which sure. I think is endemic to Malek's performances across the board. He's all from the get go. He's a little cold and hard. He's a to much approach. more cerebral player. And, um, you know, it I, should be pointed out that I don't know what his uh, ancestry is, but here he's cast as a Latino because apparently there aren't any Latinos in L.A. I don't know. That's what I've been told. But uh, that being he's said, Egyptian. That being said, uh, they apparently cast their uh, net a little wider and said, okay, we couldn't find the right Latino for this role. So they got Rami Malek. And I will, having said that, I promise you guys, I'm not going to, uh, you know, berate that point too much. He doesn't embarrass himself. He, it's a tricky role in that he's playing at least two or three shades of the same guy. He's also having to deal with an accent, dealing with Spanish, dealing with, you know, these different time frames, dealing with different sort of physical portrayals of this character. That's why I said it is a tour de force performance. And while, you know, I think it's actually a very good movie, it almost became my pick of the week. But I'd say if you're kind of curious about movies that are a little off the beaten path, movies that you can't understand how they even got made or why, then this is worth checking out, <laughs> particularly for his performance. And yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't feel, I, I don't think I like it as much as you did because, like I said, there was a point I just felt a point of disconnect with this. I thought the twist that came was really predictable, and it, like I said, it didn't hurt that it so closely resembled one from Mr. Robot. But all that being said, this is a fascinating little film. Uh, it's definitely well worth your time. The film comes with uh, the DVD comes with about uh, the seven deleted scenes, and that's about it. But, yeah, you know, I mean, it's, it's a pretty bare bones disc. It's one of those. Give it a try if you like films like Swiss Army Man or Donnie Darko, and I think this is something that can catch your attention. And, and a director who, you know, this was came out of a writing workshop, and somehow, amazingly, she got the money and the financing pretty quickly. She landed Rami Malek before he was well known, and she shot it in 18 days. And you're like, if you could pull all that off, I want to know what you're going to do next. Well, our next film is uh, one that I was a big fan of, but also don't think it's the best work by director Ben Wheatley, mm -hmm. almost because it's almost too slight for a director that often, although has done certainly both a lot with action and comedy, um, tends to have a little more depth going yeah. on than than here. But if you're watching this just as a, a action comedy, unlike any you've seen before, Free Fire is something that yeah. should definitely be on your list. Yeah, um, I, I totally agree with you. This this is a movie with this is totally an exercise in style. If you're looking for substance, you're not going to find much here. But oh my god, it burns well, with style. style and really funny, well written dialogue. Yeah, and characters who are definitely. Like, I wouldn't call them cliches, perhaps, but they're single-note characters. You know, yeah. they have very little to tell about them, and once we know it, that's... 
that's who they are for the rest of the thing. Yeah. The idea is essentially there's a guns deal going down between two groups of people, uh, and then in between these two groups are Army Hammer and Brie Larson, who are sort of the facilitators. Yeah, they're the brokers of this deal, of this deal between the IRA and a local yeah. gun running you, mob. You've got Shalto Copley, who is the head gun runner guy, and you've got Cillian Murphy, who's the head IRA guy, and. Everything goes terribly wrong when it turns out that uh, two of the guys on either side, the the flunkies, had met earlier in a bar, and apparently one of them, like, hospitalized the other one's sister uh, because she wouldn't put out, I guess. And he denies having done it, and before you know it, shots are fired. And really, the bulk of this movie, like, 90% of this is... Is, no, a, it, it is, is a firefight. A firefight. This yeah. is this is. Tw- there's about 20 minutes of setup of these two groups who don't particularly trust one another. Understandably, there's a lot of tension. But once that tension comes to a head, you literally have. It, it's hard to talk about this film in terms of set pieces because really the entire last hour of this film is literally one long extended action scene. Yes. And one of the things that and I found this very intriguing. Uh, Ben Wheatley, it's kind of a bare bones disc, but he does. There is a, a commentary and also a very brief fifteen minute uh, making of, but which, by the way, is really well worth your time watching if you get to see it. And Ben Wheatley kind of pointed out that so many of the films that he saw today that are action films are so heavy on spectacle, so heavy on CG, so heavy on effects that you lose some of the tension. You know, you you know, you you know that it's a digital city falling apart. You know, right. it's a spaceship that's blowing up, and it's just pixels. This is the kind of movie where it's literally about a dozen characters in a warehouse, all you know, who have found a place to cower behind. No, nobody's a crack shot. Yeah. Nobody like you know can do a headshot on a moving Almost target. Everybody gets at everybody least gets one shot. bullet wound within the ten minutes yeah. of the beginning of the and fight. And that's great because <laughs> all of them are limping and staggering and, and bleeding. And Nobody gets to do any sort of balletic type of act. Guys on the same side yeah. end up switching sides, and then a third faction comes in. Yeah. His goal was to like double cross them, but then they find out, oh shit, they're already shooting each other. Yeah. You know what do we do now? Uh, this is. Really Really good, and if you understand how a uh, an action scene is constructed, uh, you realize what an accomplishment this is. Yes. Because you have a dozen characters all in one location, but there's many sublocations within that location. And Ben Wheatley, who both wrote, directed, and edited this film, has to keep track of where everybody is at any given moment. I mean, one of the big action beats in this movie is as simple as. All of these criminals realize, holy shit, there is a working phone yeah. in this warehouse, and we all have to either stagger, crawl, or limp our way to yeah, get to it. Nobody can walk to it. Of course, back. it's on the second floor. Exactly. <laughs> and it becomes one of the highlights of the film is how are they going to get up there? And really, you know, once you see how he storyboarded this film, literally drawing maps knowing where everybody is at any given point if you've ever tried to done if you've ever tried to do continuity on a film and you see characters I, I, can, I have to assume it was mostly shot in sequence 
because I my would, goodness, I would assume so as well. Um, it's impossible to keep track of. It was all this interesting stuff. during this that extra feature, the the fifteen minute one, that you actually even see the clothing where you see all the different stages of damage yeah, to, to the clothes out. along the way. You know that they have based on what's what they've experienced so far. I mean, this is an exercise, but it. It's an intent, entertaining as hell exercise. Absolutely, and I can understand. I know some people saw this and were like, "Yeah, it just wasn't really my thing." I, you know, anybody who's a really big fan of action movies, I think knowing what you're to expect in this is going to find this fascinating. And there's so many great, like, just side characters doing cool stuff in here. Jack Raynor is in this, uh, and he's just he's like a junkie, and he's so obnoxious but lovably wow. obnoxious. Uh, there's, it's fun. Yeah, and, Michael and, Smiley, Noah Taylor, all. Yeah. Patrick Burt, there's a lot of actors, who, some of whom you've seen in a lot of other films or yeah. TV shows, but here they get a little bit more to chew on. And, and again, Killian Murphy and Brie Larson, Army Hanover, and Charlotte Copley as this just insane uh, South African uh, gun runner. It's a great cast. Well, I love they that all get a lot of fun. Nobody stuff likes Shelto Copley. Like nobody not even the people who were there with him like him. Uh, but everybody likes Brie Larson, and she almost has a point where they almost let her go because everybody's like, "Is there any reason for us to shoot her?" Yeah, like on either side. I mean, they did anyway, <laughs> yeah. but they're like, ah, you know. This is a movie where there's really no good people. No, they're all bad criminals. Everybody here is a villain, but they're but it's a comedy, so you know you have a good time with it. Yeah, it's definitely worth your time watching. It's a great exercise, and you know a hell of a lot of fun. Now, speaking of things that are definitely just an exercise, and in this case, an exercise in self-promotion, is the DVD of With Great Power, the Stan Lee story. I mean, this is like a fun. Like fast-paced, put-together documentary about Stan Lee and his life and his history with comics and getting to where he is now that is more resonant because there's so much of it is just him spending time with his wife and them yes. having fun, like, lovingly snarking back Joanne. and forth at each other. Yeah. And it's it's resonant because she just died recently. Yeah, and they've been married for, like, over 40, 46, almost, almost 50 years. Yeah. And I know that I'm not the only one who, when I heard that she had passed away... Which literally was like two weeks ago, maybe less. And, you know, Stan Lee's in his 90s. And like many people, I thought, oh, well, that's sad. But another part of my brain is going, you know what? Stan Lee may not be with us much longer. No, especially not now that the the woman who is clearly the love of his life is is passed on, his partner in so many things. I mean, she was an author herself. She she wrote a couple books, apparently. He even says, you know, she liked to spend so much money. That, you know, if she hadn't spent so much money, I wouldn't have been motivated to work so damn hard. And so, you know, I mean, he's definitely- joking about it, but obviously there's a sense that he had a wife who was kind of not maybe high maintenance, but, you know, he loved her to death and he was committed to providing. Yes. And that's why Stan Lee cranked out so much material that we now enjoy today. And, you know, I mean, if you're looking for something that's an accurate read on the history of Marvel Comics, this is not it. No, I mean... This skips completely over anything that even smells faintly of criticism of Stan Lee. No, no. And there's lots of criticism to be made of Stan Lee and the way he handled himself. And he does acknowledge some of those briefly. I mean, he kind of gives a a little service to Joe Kirby and other folks. But not in the sense that, like, wow, some of these guys hate me now. Yeah, no. I mean, and once again, I don't want to talk shit about Stan Lee. I mean, he's just a human, and he made a lot of mistakes along the way, but he also made a lot of, did a lot of good things, and he also did a lot to try and heal things, wounds from before that things were caused when you're in the middle of a 
business yeah, like that. And you also but, really come to realize, because it, it also goes a little bit briefly into his time when, you know, like he's trying to, you know, leave, Mar- not leave Marvel, but go, you know what, let's go to L.A., let's go to Hollywood, let's try to make some TV shows, let's try to make some cartoons, you know, and then later on when he's uh, trying to take advantage of the Internet and do some stuff on that pl- new platform and that kind of ends in failure. But you get a sense that from very early days, Stan Lee was a guy who was willing to try new things. And while he, I, I don't believe that he's actively involved with the cur- current Marvel MCU. He, he's still involved the way he's been for the last 30 years. He's I, a figurehead that lives in L.A. And, and interacts with yeah. them based on movie stuff. Yeah. And they use as a sort of the symbol of Marvel yeah. comics. But you yeah. realize that in a way, he was the first guy to go hey, we should go out to Hollywood and see if we can put these characters into a oh, new platform. He definitely was the first guy. And, you know, that, so, even though he's not probably as actively involved now, but it's not an exaggeration to say that this current sort of renaissance of comic book movies probably would not have happened if Stanley in the late 60s, early 70s hadn't said, hey... Let's try to do something else with these characters Agreed. and get them on the screen. And let's face it, a lot of that stuff was really bad. But, you know, they had to start somewhere. Yes. And he had the vision to go, hey, you know, these characters can work outside of just the funny pages medium. We can actually go worldwide and go across all mediums. Now, whereas normally I would say this is a, you know, fun disc, well worth your time. There's a ton of bonus features, even though oh, yeah. some of them you're like, why isn't the whole thing here? Rather than some of the short clips, I'm like, I would have liked to have seen the full interview with Kevin Smith and, and Mar- with uh, where Kevin Smith at UCLA was interviewing Joe Casada and Stan Lee. I would have liked to have seen yeah. the full thing there's, instead there's of just tons pieces of, of it. But... The reason I can't recommend it is because the studio distributor is putting this out. This is a just a re-release of a 2012 version yeah. of this. That even then, when it was completely wildly inappropriate to do it that way, didn't make this release anamorphic. Yeah, in 2012, everybody already had a flat I, screen. Now you can't even make your stuff function without a flat screen, I, and this uh, is still. And not anamorphic. It's a little box in the center of your screen. I, I even sent the distributor an email saying, what are you doing? I, I can only assume that this was kind of a cash grab, cheap, let's yes. just crank it out. We've got all these special features and unused you'll, videos. You'll see it, you'll see it in used. Walmart in the like in you know, the shopping aisles when you're when you're when you know, you're checking out. If, if you you're know. a hardcore comic fan, there's nothing here that's gonna be like totally new to you. You're probably already familiar with this side of the story. However, I think for the general audience, it is a good introduction into an important, sometimes controversial, but largely important figure in the history of comic books. And yes, the uh, the non-anamorphic stuff was really weird. I'm only hoping I'm hoping that's only on the screener copies. No, no, this is the release copy. Oh, God. yeah. Okay. Sorry. That's it. So, in other words, I can't. I don't buy this. I'm sorry. That's tell vote with your dollars. Tell them absolutely not. This is unacceptable for you to release in this day and age. It just shows total carelessness. And I'm I'm actually. If I work at that company, I would be honestly kind of ashamed that this or came out. Or just wait until it goes to the dollar bin. Yeah, I mean, yeah, maybe so. All right. Well, let's move into something I can wholeheartedly recommend, although not to everyone. This oh, is no, definitely a, a, a grown-up movie. Oh, yeah. And this is Criterion's release of the 1979 Soviet science fiction art film by Andrei Tark- Tarkovsky called Stalker. This is one of these films I've been hearing about 
for decades. It's, yeah. I mean, I remember going to the video store and looking at the copy of this and like carrying it around with me as my list of possibles. Yeah. You know what I mean? But, but then never, never committing actually to committing it. to it. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm glad I didn't see it then because I don't think it would have resonated with me I, as a, as a 17 year old. I, I first saw this movie maybe 20 years ago and, and having watched it again recently, it, it's still, it, it's still a challenging work. Yes. Uh, you know, and, and Chris is right, guys. This is not for everyone. Now, he, here's kind of my benchmark, my sort of baseline. When I talk to people who are interested in films and want to try some new stuff, I'm like, can you get through 2001 A Space Odyssey? If you think 2001 A Space Odyssey is boring, you don't want to watch this movie. Right. That, that's kind of my – and I only say that I think that's the film that most people know. I think 2001 A Space Odyssey is boring, but I also think that's partially because it's not as deep as it thinks it is. Well, this is deeper than it – You make the same argument here. I would argue this is a lot deeper than it appears. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, one thing to remember about Tarkovsky is, you know, Tarkovsky, he died tragically young in his early 50s and quite possibly because of his involvement on Stalker and all of the toxic shit that they were exposed to while working in the in, on these locations. Mm -hmm. uh, but he was kind of a poet. He, he put, released a handful of films, probably his best-known films besides Stalker is Solaris. They're both sci-fi films. He's not really a sci-fi filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Uh, but all of his films have this in common where they have very long running times, very long takes. Tarkovsky's attitude was that if you let a take go too long, it eventually gets boring. But if you let it go even longer, at some point it piques your interest. And he pushes that theory to the limit with Stalker. I mean, there are shots that go on for two or three minutes where... Apparently nothing happens. Right. Yet you get the impression that anything could happen. Yes, that is that is key to Stalker. Uh, this, it's 161 minutes. Criterion has put this out in a really beautiful set. The the um the premise is this guy who is known as a stalker, whose job is to take people out into the 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 wastelands, essentially called the zone, a mysterious restricted site. Um. And the reason is because apparently somewhere in it, there's a room which, if you go into it, has the ability to fulfill a person's deepest desires. Yeah. So he's going out there with two people who paid him to go, a writer and a, um, professor. a, a professor, a scientist. That's, all, that's the only w way they're ever addressed. There's yeah. writer and professor. And it's just their voyage as, you know, the film starts off in sepia. And yeah. once they actually get into the zone, it turns into full color, mm -hmm. which was actually, I believe, unusual for, for Tarkovsky. He was not crazy about color film. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's almost in an odd way. I mean, really, the only film that I can think of that does that is Wizard of Oz, which right. is a strange comparison. But again, there is a sense that the zone, which we're told in a prologue, may have something to do with some alien presence. Yeah. It's a, it's a it's like magical realism where it might not be magical yeah. realism the whole time. You're constantly wondering, like, are these guys just freaking themselves out? Yeah. Or is there really something to it, this it, world? It's really Tarkovsky's way of you because it was based on a sci-fi novel called Roadside Picnic, which was a little bit more of a conventional sci-fi novel. And it's too much. We don't have enough time to go into all of the background on this no. film. But suffice it to say, Tarkovsky made it three times. Uh, this vinyl, final version is the third and final version. The, the first two versions, there were a lot of problems. And he got permission to remake it yet again. Uh, 
And this one is where he kind of just, with each iteration, I think he moved further and further away from the source material uh, to where it really bears little re- uh, little resemblance to the original novel. But having that sort of poetic eye, he used that story as a springboard to address issues that were of concern to him. And things like philosophy, religion, and a lot of things that, frankly, uh, you weren't allowed to talk about uh, during the Soviet era. He uses that film as a way to get these ideas across, but do them in a way that is so opaque, so poetic, and so hard to pin down that they could get past the censor. Uh, I think this is a, a masterpiece. It's worth watching, but again, you know, you it's, have it's, to give yourself to it. And it's kind of, it's weirdly, it's like a picnic in the post-apocalypse. Yeah. You know, this world they're going through is all burnt out, like pieces of houses and train cars and, and underground really, underground sewer tunnels. And constantly, these descriptors by the stalker of like, this, like points where he's like, oh, this is the meat grinder. This mm-hmm. is the part that's the most dangerous. Yeah. But you're watching this and you're not, it's not the kind of movie where things actually happen. Yeah. It's just the... The intimation that if they do anything wrong, because there's this incredibly complex series of rules you have to follow mm-hmm. just to keep from losing yourself forever in the zone, according to the stalker, you, that that things could go that wrong. You could be lost forever. Yeah. And it builds to a conclusion where you're ultimately, like, really with the writer and the scientist with the decisions that they end up making, with everything they learn about each other and just things Along the way, you kind of they come to an understandable conclusion. The only thing that confused me at all is almost an epilogue here mm-hmm. involving the stalker's daughter. Yeah, that I was like, I have no idea what what there, there, he was getting at with that. There's some intimation that too much exposure to the zone uh, can create mutants. Yeah, uh, and that can actually mutate the children of people. I mean, it's, who have it, been in the zone too long. It's really the only scene in the whole movie that genuinely shows us something supernatural is going on. Yeah. I mean, again, this is a movie that deals with, you know, it deals presumably with aliens, supernatural stuff, extraterrestrial type of experiences, sort of religious experiences, and yet does it with almost no effects. Yeah, there, almost nothing there, actually no happening kind of, of that. spectacle. <laughs> it's just implied. Yes. And it is, you know, like I said, if you... If you're looking for something that's just going to, you know, wow you with technique and amaze you with, like, effects and, like, all kinds of high-premise concepts, you may find this movie disappointing. But if you are willing to tackle some bigger issues and you are patient enough to sit through it from beginning to end... I think you may be rewarded. I found it a very zen-like experience, not unlike watching Vim Vendor's movies. I yeah. really did. Um, and But this was deeply influential, this movie. I mean, even after the Chernobyl disaster, people were referring to yeah. the area called the Zone of Alienation, just like yeah. it is in this the film. The excluded zone. It yeah. predates Chernobyl. It's yeah. eerie how much it predates Chernobyl. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a game series, based, yeah. video game series based on this. Uh, I mean, it's just kind of bizarre. In Westworld, Jonathan Nolan says, Stalker was a huge influence on him when he was writing Westworld. There was a, an FX series about, oh my God, several years ago, maybe 10 years ago, called The Room, and it, it, it bears little relation 
to Stalker, but again, it's that idea that there's this mysterious room and that if only you could reach it, if only you could understand what occurred there, then you might gain some kind of insight or power. And I suspect that people who really love to dig deep into stuff like David Lynch might also find this really fascinating. There's a lot of implied and less stuff actually like occurring. Yeah. But anyway, the, you know, I don't want to spend too much time. No, here. no, no. This is, Bones, I should say it's my pick of the week. There's a leaflet here with an essay by a critic about it. There's a, a video interview with Jeff Dyer who wrote a book called zone zona, a book about film, a journey to a room, which talks about this. Um, there's a, a old video interview with Edward art art that's right. Yeah. You did the soundtrack here uh, and talk about working with Tarkovsky at the time. There's an archival video interview with the set designer. There's an interview uh, with the cinematographer. I mean, it's a pretty good set. And this is, like I said. And cons- also recently reissued, uh, remastered. Yes. And, and really well worth the look. I mean, again, if you started watching it, you're going to go, my God, it's just dreary. It's actually got this sort of sulfurous yellow, yes. uh, black and white tone. And then. And then suddenly it blooms into color when you reach the zone. Oz. You know, and it is the Oz moment. Uh, this is a movie that I want to watch again, and I th- hope that you guys will give it a chance. I can see totally, like, once every five years wanting to rewatch a- absolutely. this. Absolutely. Um, all right. So, moving on. You didn't get to see. I did because I, I forgot about it. Didn't make my list earlier, and it should have. But it is A Quiet Passion. This is a 2016 biography film of American poet Emily Dickinson by writer Terrence uh, Davies. Oh, man. I uh, wish you would let me know because I, I do like Terrence Davies stuff. Well, it's this is an interesting film, but I it's... Emily Dickinson's a fascinating person, but I didn't come out of this feeling I understood why she was the way she was so much as understood just that she was. Yeah. Uh, and here you've that got... That seems very in keeping with Terrence Davies' methodology. Here you've got a young uh, Emily B- Emma Bell playing a young Emily Dickinson, and then Cynthia Nickus- Nixon in what almost certainly is going to be an award-grabbing turn as uh, the, for most of this film as the older Emily Dickinson. And it's her interacting with her family. It's funny. Her her father is very um, acerbic, but still a little not not full blown atheist like Emily and her mm-hmm. sister and her brother are. Uh, her sister, her brother, also they're all very smart. Book read. Only the mom is kind of taciturn and like I don't get involved in this shit. That's kind of they all love her, but just like when they're fucking with other people, which they regularly are in this, uh, you know, basically quoting clever aphorisms. At, not at, literally at, fucking. At, no, at, at, at clueless neighbors or, or priests. Pretty sure Emily Dickinson died a virgin. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes, as far as we know. Um, and it's Emily slowly retreating more and more from like someone who was, you know, loved calling people out on their bullshit and, and as much as she could at that period of time to eventually just becoming disheartened with having anything to do with anyone. I mean, she spent the last many years of her life in a single room refusing to talk to anyone except through the door. Yeah. You know, she, she was an odd lady. Keith Carradine does a wonderful turn as her father here. Um, it's kind of a fun movie, strangely, which you wouldn't expect for this type of period piece. But it almost was, a, you know, a little bit too BBC cartoonish for me. At the end, I was like, well, that was fun. I'm glad I watched it. But it's far from a classic, you know. Um, it, but I can see definitely that this is going to be worthy of um, anyone who likes, you know, Oscar Wilde mm-hmm. type uh, period piece comedy. There's a certain degree of that here as it – although, like I said, it – Gen, uh, generally takes a turn for the tragic and and very uh, existential 
but it's good. It's just not, you know, great or essential. I, I may borrow it from you and watch it later. I would not be I'm surprised curious. at all, though, to see, like I said, Cynthia Nixon show up in awards season. Um, there's uh, EPK about behind the scenes here. There's a Q&A with Terrence Davies and Cynthia Nixon that was at the Lincoln Center for 23 minutes. There's a CBC interview with Cynthia Nixon about it. There's uh, Davies and Nixon reciting Emily Dickinson po- po- uh, poems, which they do a lot in here. They illustrate some sequences by by her basically reading the poems as, as a narrator almost, you know, to sort like, oh, okay, well, this reflects what was going on at that point of her life. I mean, I'm not a big poetry guy, never have been, and yet I found this pretty amusing. So there you go. All right, let's move on to another one that you have seen, and that is Psychoanalysis. Man, this was so close to being a film I would have kind of enjoyed, and then I felt like it just kind of threw its hands up in the air. I was like, you know what? It's not actually about anything except, boy, aren't psychoanalysts arrogant. Yeah, there's a good premise that's squandered in, in, even though it has a relatively brief running time, I think they exhausted the core idea pretty quickly. Uh, This is a story about... uh, a guy in, uh, I, I believe this is an Australian film, uh, who is one of considered to be the best uh, psycho- psychoanalysis in the country. Uh, he has an enormous success record in suicide prevention, and so much of it is based on his sort of this sort of self help attitude that he has, where you know he's actually not just you know offering them advice and listening to their problems. But he has a personal relationship. Yeah, he's with his super. Client. He's with super hands on. He'll he. Yeah. They have his home phone number. Yeah. You know, they will. They'll talk to him directly. He will go do things with them. And then one day, five of his clients uh, commit suicide in very quick succession. He's suddenly brought under investigation. He's at the risk of losing his license. The bar, the psychoanalysis bar, whatever that you want to call that group, is looking into him. And a documentary crew is starting to follow him. Yeah, because this is like an interesting situation. It's a mockumentary. I wouldn't go call it a mockumentary. It's not funny comedy. I feel like they want to be funny, but they don't ever quite go far enough. It's just depressing watching this guy as he. This film, which. Like, sells itself like maybe you're watching a genre thriller. You're not watching a genre thriller. No. You're watching a guy whose ego is so big, it literally drives him insane. Yeah, and he's convinced oh, he that other to, people are framing him yeah, for all of these that deaths. These were not suicides. They were murders. And then that this guy who works for the, on the board, who's his rival, is the guy who is so jealous of him. He's murdering yeah. these people. And by the end of this, I was like, so what was the point of all that other than I guess the writer is really pissed off at psychoanalysts? I I, I think at the end – and again, this is difficult without spoiling. But at the end, you know, basically – and we've seen this trope played out before. Hell, we saw this trope played out last time when we reviewed Do You Remember Me or Don't Mm -hmm. You Remember Me? Yeah, Don't You Remember Me? Recognize Me? I think it's Recognize Me. Either way. But it had that same thing like suddenly they turn – the accusatory finger at the documentary. Yeah. And crew. they once again make that same point. Don't you feel responsible? Yeah. Don't you, you realize this, you allowed this? To don't happen. you realize that none, this would never have gotten yeah. this bad. I mean, this guy was you. already in bad shape, but you made it worse just by showing up and documenting. A point it. that if you're not going to make subtly, you probably shouldn't make it all anymore Correct. because it's been made so many guys. It, it's time. a shame because the actors commit to it. There's a few good guys. Yeah, there's actually decent performances and, and throughout yeah. this. It's just it goes on too long and it falls For between two film, stools. Man. It it wants to be funny, but it's never that funny. It wants to be dramatic, it but it's not that 
interesting to be dramatic. So we're checking out once, but a very a very light recommendation. Uh, I wouldn't even go that far. I, yeah. I would not put the word recommendation in my my feelings. I'd be like about if it this. if it showed up on your screen and you were watching it, okay. But I don't. I'm not going to suggest you run out and get it. Unlike the next film we have, which I think you should run out and get. Yeah, Stormy Monday. This is a 1988 film uh, and was the debut of director Mike Figgis, who mm-hmm. is definitely much more highly touted as a director in England than he is here, where we're largely unfamiliar with his work. But even, uh, you know, with quite a few big popular award-winning, uh, BAFTA we, award-winning you know, films under his belt. Right, we Las um, Vegas uh, and uh, films like yeah, that. A lot of his fans, like hardcore fans, think this first movie was uh, by him was his best movie. Now, I don't know if I'm going to go there, but it's a fascinating 80s, like d- dripping with 80s atmosphere, yeah. but noir thriller right. that uh, put less on the thriller, more on just it's noir. It's more of a romantic noir. Uh, the jazz soundtrack actually done by Figgis himself yeah. being set in Newcastle upon Tyne, England. Uh, it's thought of as a homage to Get Carter, which is interesting. I don't know if I would have said that per se, just uh, seeing it, but it's yeah. so been so widely repeated, I it, guess it, so. It's, it's one of those parts of England that whenever it does feature in a film, it's yeah. usually... It's, uh, Within the crime genre, and yet, and you you'll see this in some of the special features. Uh, it's very clear that it is a very romantic. It's an idealized, very stylized, very stylized version of this. There, you know, you think, oh, that's what it was like. It's like, no, this is not what it's like. It is Mike Figgis taking this town that's dear to his heart and telling a story that is very tied to American influences. In yes. fact, that's an enormous theme. Yeah, one of the big the themes here is there's this company that is uh, being run by, oh, what is the actor's name? Tommy uh, Lee Jones. Tommy Lee Jones, who is organized this big America Day where there's yeah. going to be a parade and everything in this small English town where it's these corporation coming in and basically investing heavily yeah. in this area. And they're buying up all the properties. And the standout guy doesn't want to sell the owner of this jazz club called the key club that's played actually quite well by, by Sting. Sting. It's one of who his best roles. Yeah. Who doesn't always turn out great he's from, he is from Newcastle and he is a bass player and a musician. So you're like, yes, of course Sting could play yes. a guy from Newcastle who plays bass and a very, very young looking Sean Bean oh, God, is a yeah. kind he's of a, a drifter type who shows up to work for Sting as a cleaner for night work cleaner. But Sting, kind of takes to him right off the bat is like, oh, I like you. You know a lot about music and stuff. Yeah. They kind of like right off the bat is like, oh, I'm going to be the cool boss. Uh, meanwhile, Melanie Griffith is um, at working for Tommy Lee Jones. It's never entirely clear yeah, what her job murky. even She's is. She's a waitress, but she has a history with Tommy Lee yeah, Jones. She, has, she does something for him. We're not clear exactly what, but she's supposed to be helping the, the this. The implication is that he, she's sort of a honey trap for yeah, him. I, you know, when he wants to grease some wheels with some local politicians, he sends her out to uh, flirt with the guy until he gets what he wants. But uh, she has a meet cute with Sean Bean. They really hit it off. And it really is super cute, the two of them together. And the problem being is that Sting does not want to sell. Tommy Lee Jones is like, well, I'm not going to accept that for an answer. He's essentially a gangster. Yeah. So he starts sending people after him. And when he starts realizing his girl, Melanie Griffith, is hanging out with his with Sting's guy, Sean Bean, well, then they get sucked into this whirlpool. Yeah. And it, this isn't as dramatic as it sounds. No, it's really not. It's, it's Narratively, it's quite slight. It really coasts on atmosphere and the yeah. performances. And, you know, it, it's... And also, it's this theme about, you know, it, it has an ambivalence 
about America. You know, we're treated to this idea of like, well, it's America week and we're constantly having American products, American ideas yeah. tossed in our face. And yet the sort of symbol of authenticity is this good boy from Newcastle who owns a jazz club, which is like one of the most American art forms one could imagine. It's kind of Mike Figgis acknowledging that he is sick of the American influence. I mean, the soundtrack to this could have been The Clash singing I'm So Bored of the USA. Right, but at the but same... he also loves yeah, it. Yeah, I was going to say, because he clearly loves what the Key Club stands for and that part yes. of Americana, and yet is sick of this other side of Americana, the, 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 the like, come in and just the keep sort expanding. of colonial expansionism. Yeah. You know, so yeah, it, it, it's culturally in love with America, but economically very much uh, concerned about its encroachment upon Great Britain. It's just such a beautifully shot film. And when you right, see Roger, Roger Deakins, Deakins as a cinematographer, films. you're like, oh, well, that makes a lot of sense. And, and, you know, a lot of these folks, I mean, we talk about Sean Bean. We talk, Sting, of course, was a big star by then. Uh, Mike Figgis, it was his debut feature. I believe the uh, costume designer went on to win some awards for other film. This was an early film for a lot of people who went on to bigger things. And this was big enough in England that it actually got a spin-off television series yeah, about David Sting's Tennant. character playing da- with David Morrissey, not David Oh, Tennant. I'm sorry. I yeah. thought it was David Tennant. Who, who uh, I, if I'm not mistaken, what was that? He was in a sci-fi British series, though. Um, the one that was like the guy who goes back in time. He's a cop who goes back in time. Oh, yeah, yeah. W- w- they remade that one, too. Yeah, they is... remade that here, too, and I'm blanking on the name yeah. of it. I it, think it, that he was in that, but he was also... It was Life on Mars? Yeah, I think it was Life on Mars he was in, if I'm not mistaken. Taken, but okay. he's also best known as playing the governor in, in uh, The Walking yeah. Dead to American audiences. But yeah, Arrow has but, done, a, an, again, as usual, done a wonderful beautiful job transfer putting here. it together, making it look great. Oh, my goodness. Adding an audio so commentary by Mike Figgis. Uh, there is a 33-minute, you know, looking back on. Yeah tours back through the film by uh, by a guy named Neil Young. But not, not the that musician one. one. Um, well worth watching, by the yeah. way. So, yeah, I highly recommend this. This is a lot of fun. I can't as much recommend, but still say it was kind of fun, this yeah. next one, which is the 1987 film that is often, and I didn't know this until I started watching it and was reading about it, is often said, I know we always say with the Fast and the Furious, the first Fast and the Furious film, we're like, oh, well, that was just ripping off Point Break. Well, that's because you haven't seen No Man's Land <laughs> yet, which clearly it borrowed even more from than Point Break. Yeah. This 1987 film was written by Dick Wolf. Yes, that, that Dick, Dick Wolf, Wolf. The the, the uh, Law and Order Dick Wolf. Yeah. Um, uh, directed by Peter Werner with Charlie Sheen and D.B. Sweeney on either side. Uh, D.B. Sweeney being an undercover policeman who uh, is put in to try and investigate a group that are stealing cars and like, you know, going into chop shops and reselling them. Charlie Sheen being the totally slick player face of one of these groups. Uh, Randy Quaid plays the, the, um, uh, Gary, uh, what's his name? The Busey role. The Busey role. Basically. He's the cop who's yeah. like in charge. And you know, I mean, it's that, that down to the same thing where the, uh, Charlie Sheen has a hot sister. DB Sweener falls for, her, but then it's like, Oh, what am I going to do? Because eventually I'm going to, she's going to find out I'm a cop and I also and he really like close. this guy. Yeah. I don't want to bust him, but you know, and, and unlike, I feel like unlike um, uh, uh, Point Break, it it does ultimately put Charlie Sheen in a position where you can't root for him anymore. Yeah, you know? no, absolutely. I mean, it's he's not, not as, a good guy. Yeah, exactly. Ultimately, he's not a good guy. But ultimately, neither is anyone else in this film. No, it's it's a very eighties, very neon, very American film with lots of fast cars cocaine 
uh, hot chicks wearing very little. I mean, it's exactly what you expect, except a little better than you'd yeah. expect. This is actually from 1987, which is actually one of my favorite years for movies. There's a lot of my uh, sort of influential films for me as a viewer uh-huh. uh, that came out in 1987. This is not one of them. It's one that I kind of vaguely remember it's watching. A, it's on. a footnote, but, but it's, it's a, fun. It's and a nice little footnote. You got Bill Duke. You've got you know Randy. The thing that hit em, me Emmett watching Walsh. this again, Emmett Walsh, who yeah. was like there for a hot minute. The thing that really got me rewatching this after all these years was like, oh yeah, I had almost forgotten. Uh, I had forgotten that there was a time when Charlie Sheen and Randy Quaid were like really legitimate up and coming actors that everybody wanted in their movie. Oh yeah. And now they're fucking batshit insane. Yeah. They're both crazy. You know, maybe it was uh, this movie that did it just like that movie that killed everyone who did it. Like John Wayne and Marilyn Monroe. and everyone. I think that was cancer. And also uh, a stalker killed people too, but they didn't go insane. They just got really sick here. They went nuts. But yeah, you thought, oh God, I remember liking these guys. And now you look at those characters, those actors on screen and your tendency is to just sort of preemptively laugh. But at this stage in their career, they were taken seriously. Yeah, they were hot as up and coming actors. People were like, yeah, these guys are going to be big. And this film played a decent run when it came out. It just kind of gotten forgotten until people looked back after Fast and the Furious. Like, oh, wow. Being written by Dick Wolf, it kind of feels like a TV movie. Yes, it does. Just, you know, with a little bit more production value than you would expect it's not uh i wouldn't avoid it it's it's worth your time checking out once but yeah it should be fun all right so another one that you didn't get to see is the devil's domain um not as bad as you would think a dvd only horror really actually i'm sorry i think it did come out on blu-ray but they sent me the dvd uh you know cheapy horror film but not that really good either just because it's just so obvious um, Linda Bella, who is one of those actresses who's really tall and really unearthly gorgeous type who al- almost always plays like demons or monsters or evil women when she shows up and stuff. She plays Satan, who like most of the time just looks like a hot chick in a red dress. And she... When Satan comes for me, that's exactly how I want him to look, by <laughs> she, the way. I mean, she plays the best... She's the best thing about this movie. She's just so slinky and evil to a point that's like laughably fun but it's the movie's actually not really about her it's about a teenager called lisa decent performance by young actress maddie vodane who is she's anorexic or bulimic i'm sorry um she thinks it's another one of those weird movies like oh she's the ugly girl and you're like no she's a fucking knockout but everyone's goes like oh you're so fat i'm like what are you huh like weird casting choice to do that you're like yeah there's nothing fat about this girl or ugly at all or even awkward but um, she's got multiple. She's a cutter. You know, nobody likes their her after it becomes clear after she basically comes on to her best friend and her friend rejects her and clearly has told everyone about it. So she becomes the pariah. Then she's in fact, it goes so bad that one somebody she thought was her friend set up cameras in her bedroom and broadcast on YouTube to everyone images of her puking of her masturbating. And it's like, that's it. And that's when Satan shows up and goes, have I got a deal for you? (laughs) Not only am I going to have hot lesbian sex with you, but you can hang out at this really cool Satan club with all these cool hipster types with Anton LaVey goatees. And (laughs) we're going to get revenge on all those people who wronged you. And she's all too... Do they listen to techno in this club? No, it's more sort of... 
atmospheric EDM, you know. Uh, and you would ambient. do some flavor of EDM. Yeah. Fucking Satanist hipsters always listen yeah, to You'd EDM. think they'd be listening to Ministry or something, right? Something, you know? Uh, or at least, you know, old uh, uh, Metallica, you know. <laughs> I, I, I was, you know, would it be asking too much to get a little something, you know, a little more industrial maybe? I don't know. Well, the this Satan who is known as Destiny here... Uh, one by one, we see she's already been, before she even makes a deal with her, has been really gorily killing and pretty impressive gore, to be fair to this film, but like very well done gore, like some of these people who've wronged her, often with chainsaws. Yeah, I'm not sure why Satan even needs a chainsaw, but, you know, whatever. I guess she just likes style. But, you know, it's like Elise is all too anxious to sign up. And unfortunately, she is just an idiot, clearly, because like you're like you made it even Satan at own point. You made a deal with Satan. What the hell did you think was going to happen? You know, as she realizes she's that Satan is brutally murdering all these people and is making her implicit in it. And yeah, whatever. It's a slight thing. It has some halfway decent performances for a film this bad. And it's got some pretty well thought out, cool deaths. But is it essential horror? No, it's way too bad to be. I mean, because the dialogue is terrible, is terribly written. It's not terribly well directed. But I will give full points to the effects crew who really knocked it out of the park. Fair enough. All right, let's go to a movie I liked even less than that. Uh, although this was a, a relatively well-funded, big-budget release with uh, with uh, a, modest no, a modest budget release with big-name actors, and that is Black Butterfly. This is not only my least favorite film we watched this week, but it is one of my least favorite films of the year. And I say that based on that context of, yeah, you had the money, you had the talent, there's no way this shouldn't have been a lot better than it uh, was. Well, you know, everything originates with the screenplay. Uh, and, and, you know, this is a screenwriter's movie, for good or bad. Yeah. This is a screenplay written by a screenwriter who wants to tell us something about screenwriting and honestly has nothing to do. Uh, nothing interesting to say about it. This is uh, features uh, Antonio Banderas as Paul. Paul is a screenwriter. Here's a, here's a tip, kids. Any film starts Any, with the protagonist being a screenwriter, you're going to watch a screenwriter's film. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It, it's always going to, there's always going to be a certain amount of wankery involved. And boy, do you get it. He is a, a down on his luck screenwriter. Uh, he's almost broke. He can't afford to live in this beautiful log cabin that he's got some, yeah. in some remote place. That he had you know, with his wife, who now is his ex-wife. His and wife has gone. left him, you know, he isn't getting worse. He's an alcoholic. He's an alcoholic. All of the clues are there to tell you that Paul is a hot man. Actually, Paul's just a regular fucking screenwriter. Yeah. Uh, That's pretty much all normal for yeah, the screenwriter. I, I just or assume just all writer. screenwriters are like that. He's not just a screenwriter. I mean, they said he worked on he the was screenplay, a novelist, but he's mainly he a novelist. He himself out to Hollywood. Yeah, he's a guy who, like, had a few big hits and then whored himself out to Hollywood yeah. and lost his rights, and now he just can't even write At, at some point, he gets one of the stupidest subplots in this movie is uh, and, and I only mention it because it does only tangentially come important later. There is a there is a serial killer uh, roaming the countryside. Yeah, and you know, Paul one day is going to uh, meet his realtor, played by Piper Parabo, who's pretty much wasted in this movie. Uh, he has a an unli- he has an unlikely run in with a uh, a drifter. Uh, played here by oh no, uh, no yeah Jonathan Reese Meyer uh, Jonathan Reese basically Myers. saves him from getting his ass kicked yeah. in a fight at and a so he feels restaurant. grateful and says hey you know let me give you a lift you know I'll give you dinner 
before long, Myers' character is going, well, you know, I think I can do a lot of stuff around this place to fix it up. In fact, I insist. In fact, I'm not going to let you say no. In fact, I'm not going to take a no for an answer. Yeah, in fact, I'm going to actually hold a gun on you unless you start doing what I yeah. tell you, but it's all for your own good Yeah, because you need to stop drinking, and I'm going to force you to do that. Yeah. You need to start writing, and I'm going to force you and even try and help you along the way for yeah. it. And if anybody comes here, their life is going to be in danger because yeah. it, it's, it's just you and me, buddy. It's one of those movies where characters go, you know, where, where, where the... I forget the character's name that Myers plays. Uh, John, whatever. Oh, uh, Jack. Jack. It's really not important. Uh, you know, he tells Paul, uh, so, you know, he he offers him some criticism. Like, well, the way you wrote this character, this isn't at all how real people talk. This isn't what real people would do. And then that character then proceeds to spend the rest of the movie acting in a way that no human being actually well, would. That's the problem is your suspension of disbelief is already way gone before they even get to the twist, oh, oh, which the is first, the first. Twist. Well, that's what I was going to say. Like the first twist is already like, okay, I'm sorry, that's such utter bullshit. Yeah, right. And then after making you sit for like 20 minutes past when the movie should have been over, you're like, okay, whatever, just let this finish up. The movie goes, no, wait, there's another twist. That's probably exactly what you thought the earlier twist was going to be, but it's the really boring, See, super predictable it, it, twist. If you go, you know, this is such that's a also ridiculous and laughable. You know, you have two really good actors here. You know, obviously a decent sized budget. Maybe they saw something in that script that did it. I mean, it's certainly competently directed, but yeah, this is this is de- imminently missable. This is really dumb. Uh, you've so got, dumb. Remember when I mentioned earlier when we were talking about Buster's Malheart, where there's certain films that try to pull the rug out from under you and force you to question everything that came before. Yeah. This film, Black Butterfly, does that twice and fails both times. Yeah, for some reason, Abel Farrar plays a role. And in yeah, here. that like, was like, why is he even I, here? I actually was like, wait, what? But did, did, what? What is that? Is that? And I was like. By the time I realized, yes, it was in fact Abel Ferrara, he was his, off the yeah, screen. Stop wasting his time and let him do actual movies. I'm like, maybe he got some money and he went off and made a movie, probably some documentary in Italy. Who knows? But this is such a lost opportunity. You have a really solid cast, great locations, a decent budget, competent direction. An okay and, starting idea and, 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 that and quickly goes know, insane. A perfectly off good the rails. premise. I mean, it's a little bit of... It's misery. a little bit of death trap. It's a little bit of misery yeah. with a whole bunch of bullshit laid it on yeah. top. And that just keeps adding up. It just gets more and yeah. more and more bullshit as it goes along till when it when it finally gets to, to the twist, which is the ultimate bullshit, the ultimate that I'm sorry, that's just not possible. Like you're already you just don't even care anymore. Yeah. It's already been so full shit. This so, was yeah. a slog. And it's a shame to see this cast wasted in that. Very true. Well, a movie I don't think was a slog and I actually really enjoyed it. It was one of my favorite of the big summer popcorn movies this year is Kong Skull Island. Now, this is their attempt to not just remake King Kong again. They're like, nobody wants to see the exact same story again, another take on it. So let's just do a new introduction to Kong with some different shit happens where, once again, it's on Skull Island, but a whole series, different series of events taking place in the 70s. Which I was like, oh, that's cool. It's like, well, technically the second to last King Kong film take place in the 70s because it was made in the 70s. But, you know, whatever. This is Jordan Voight Roberts, who already impressed the hell out of critics with his 
wonderful directorial debut, The Kings of Summer. If you get to see that, such a good movie. This is obviously an incredibly different type film. He is a total fanboy, as he's the first to admit. He's like, dude, they walked up to me with like an almost $200 million budget and said, do you want to make a kaiju film? And he said, are you fucking kidding me? And he, you know, was given apparently an awful lot of control of this film that is the second movie in the new giant American kaiju series. This is in the same universe as Godzilla, and there's a few callbacks to Godzilla. Monsterverse. Yeah, uh, Monarch is the big corporation. No, see, I actually, so far, I'm pretty pleased with what they're doing and i will are i will say there's some things there's no reason to do a shared universe there's no with reason. giant kaiju stuff there's a long history of there being a shared universe of them why not do it right Shit. i've got no issue with that what and did I those think, other movies do wrong i i think kong well actually kong was a great standalone gojita the original godzilla Great standalone. And there's lots of great, like, Japanese Godzilla films after the original Godzilla. Sure. You know, they, but they, have, they don't characters. have any of the resonance or historical importance of the original. Yeah, I don't know if I necessarily agree with that. And the I think, first, lo- the I think first lots Godzilla of movie is about it. something. It's about Japan dealing with the trauma of, you know, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The rest is like... Hey, Godzilla's gonna fight some big bug. Yeah, see, I, I, I really think you're, you're, you're not right on that. I, I, in fact, I know you're not right on that. Okay. I had to spend a lot of time watching those movies and talking with a, a Godzilla expert about them, who filled me in on lots of stuff I wouldn't have thought of my own about uh, the history. I'm sure a and lot the of that's true. Implied stuff, but uh, you know what? There's a lot more of there's a lot of substance in that, but there's a lot of bullshit laid in with. Oh yeah, no, I'm not going to argue. The substance that. is all in that first film, but I I am derailing. I I am on. Let's just say on record. I mean, I'm not crazy about this monster verse because right. I don't care about the monsters because they're not interesting characters. They're just forces of nature. Why don't you just reboot? Uh, say Twister and tell that story from the point of view of the tornado. Well, I know, don't give a fuck. I, I I don't know if I'll go that far, but. Like, I do agree with you in the sense they need to start having reoccurring human characters in these movies right. if they want them to Because it's work. just like, uh, look, I, I, I'm that limbic part of my brain is no different than yours. When I see a big monster just knocking down a building, I'm like, oh, hell yeah. I enjoy it as much as anybody. But, yeah, I need some characters for this shared universe. Otherwise, it's just... Hey, it's another movie with another monster. Which is an odd. One of the things that makes this an odd decision to make this take place in the seventies because Godzilla does not. Godzilla is modern day, right? And you're like, okay, well, clearly these guys, if they're going to be continuing on characters, those that survive this film, which is to say, not many, none. Um, uh, no, or so they're all going to be quite old. a few. Do what, but, Tom Hiddleston's you know. going to go on put yeah. on old age makeup, or, the, or they'll make other movies that take place in between this and Godzilla. Maybe. You know, I, I don't know, but either way, but enough of your complaining, grumpy old man. As a st- Standalone. As a standalone, it's perfectly enjoyable. I found this to be really fun as they're like, okay, we're going to get rid of, like, the going to New York or anything. This is them it's more fun going than to this Jackson's. island uh, with John Goodman, who's, who is the guy who's, like, there to, like, f- prove that there's a monster, works for a monarch, who's like, I can prove that these monsters are yeah. real. He's out to, and it's he right after, Hollow Vietnam, Earth it's right after America pulled out of Vietnam. So you've got a lot of like, like Samuel Jackson as, as a Colonel Kurtz type, which is to me, the weakest part of this film sure. is that he's so on the nose playing like the Colonel Kurtz type. You're like, we've seen this archetype so many goddamn like, times. Oh, you're the military guy who's yeah. going to just want to kill everything. Yeah, for, And then you've got the scientists who you already know will be the good guys. But you know, despite all that, it never got cloying to the point where I couldn't enjoy it. And there's so much 
excellently CG designed Kong and the other monsters in here that just look gorgeous. They're so well done. Yeah, they're pretty good. The action's pretty solid. The actual monster things in here that, that Kong fights are, are pretty badass. The, the skull crawlers. And John C. Riley provides great comic relief. John C. Riley, who alternately I love and hate, depending on what John he's C. in. John C. Riley should be the character they bring back in yes. the movie. John C. Riley should playing, be the connective Playing tissue. a surviving guy from, a, from World War II who's on the island, yeah. who crashed on the island, but has made friends with the natives and stuff is hysterical here. He's so funny. I really enjoyed him. I really enjoyed everybody. My only real problem with the characters, and there's a lot of them, is that we never really get to know a lot about most of them. We know more about John C. Riley than we do about anyone but else in this movie. That was the weakness of well, Jackson's I wa- Kong. I wanted it was to... like they spent like an hour and a half getting us to feel something for that yeah. fucking crew. I'm like, yeah. I can't give a fuck about these people. They're right. just there to get eaten. Right. Why I mean, did you waste an hour and a half and a hundred million dollars on people no one cared about? I mean, about? Tom Hiddleston is playing a guy who they give you just enough to know, like, oh, he's a badass but he's a really sympathetic badass yeah. that I'm like, I Name like this James character. Conrad. They're going, Oh, we read heart of darkness too. <laughs> We're David him Conrad. I like this character. I would love to see more about him. And you don't really see that much of him. Same with Brie Larson, who is a uh, photojournalist and peace activist against the war. In fact, there's a neat extra feature on here where the camera that she has in the film was mm-hmm. a real loaded camera. And she was taking, she was taking a taking ton of pictures. She was that's told cool. take pictures the whole time. And so that's actually on the bonus features here where you can look at those, uh, those photos. I don't know. I thoroughly enjoyed this thing. I had a good time with it. Yeah, it's fluff. It's just really good fluff. It is fluff. It's well-made fluff. I'm My my gripe is more like, oh, God, we're going to get more of it. Yeah, and I'm personally okay with that. I love watching giant monsters destroy a bunch of shit, so I, I'm all cool with that. Same way I'm cool with every new Marvel film coming out, except, once again... They need to find a way to have strong, reoccurring human characters in these series if they're going to continue. Marvel to work. works because it has characters. I know that Universal's trying it with their monsters. That's okay. not going to work. Some of those monsters at least have backstories and personalities. Once you go to not the MonsterVerse, so it's like you get less and less and less characters. <laughs> but let's move on to the next thing. Well, no, I'm talking about the bonus features here. Oh, well, uh, there are plenty of good bonus features. Yeah, commentary with the director. Uh, there's about. 30 minutes of, or about, you know, 25 minutes or so of things about creating King Kong, which I really enjoyed these background ones, which talk at the first half talks about the history and the mythology of Kong as a character. And the second half talks about how they actually did him, how they built him here. There's uh, five minutes uh, about them talking about filming in Vietnam. Uh, there's a piece just about Tom Hiddleston. There's a, like I said, a piece about Brie Larson's photography. Uh, the one piece here that's the, you know, the real bonus for fans of this or this universe that are building is Monarch Files 2.0, which one, the first part was, came with the Godzilla Blu-ray. And this is more just a little bit of like teasers from like, oh, this is the Monarch Files on what happened on Skull Island with the, talking to the survivors. So don't watch it till you finish watching the movie or it'll spoil some stuff for you. There's only about four minutes of deleted scenes, not very much, and nothing is really particularly worth going out of your way for. Uh, Yeah, that's about it. But I, I still think they make it worth your while. Right. Our last movie today is w- one of the most 
controversial movies to come out this year, and that's a shame because it's not interesting enough to be worthy uh, of that yeah. all that controversy. I, you know, the perfectly serviceable, but that's about it. Live action American remake of the famous anime Ghost in the Shell, yeah. and this, of course, takes the anime and Mick crunches it up with episodes of the television series that followed and the sequel movie into something that's kind of new with Scarlett Johansson stepping into uh, the shoes of the the main robot character assassin character and i i don't know i mean like we are honestly i'm not going to go on for long about this we did a review i'll just say once again i don't think this is as crazy offensive as some people think it is but it also the things that really pissed people off because there's a point in the movie where i go you know what i don't really think this is too offensive and then they make a decision with her character. I was like, okay, now you're, you think you're making a way of be, it not being offensive, but all you're doing is actually making it offensive yeah, that she's they, not in They try Asian. to give themselves an excuse for how they were whitewashing this, these yeah. characters. And it just makes it worse. And, it, you know, they try to sell it off as a plot complication, but it never really pays off. Uh, you're right in that this is serviceable. It, it it looks nice, but it's, there's it's nothing pretty, in here I haven't seen yeah, since Blade Runner. It's pretty, but it's not pretty enough. Because yeah. the first 20 minutes of this film, you're like, oh, that's pretty. Oh, that's pretty. And then it just starts recycling the same yeah, shots, Yeah, they basically. run out of gags yeah, pretty quickly. Uh, uh, visual stuff, uh, yeah. You know, the best thing about this movie was uh, a, a small part uh, by Beat Kitano, uh the yeah, Japanese Beat actor. Takeshi, yeah. uh, you know, Takashi. He has a he has some really cool little scenes where he's sort of like the the man in charge. He's like the boss, you know. Yeah. He's the I'll detective watch a, in charge. I'll watch anything with beat. Together. You know, he gets to play this sort of grumpy old man who has a few cool moments. Yeah, you know, and that was the best part of the movie. But otherwise. Look, I'm not going to tell you not to watch this movie. It's got some nice eye candy. But, you, you know, know, Scarlett Johansson's always pretty. I think if you're a big fan of Ghost in the Shell, and you should skip this. This yeah. is not going to do anything to please you. It, it, uh, if nothing if you, else, go back and... If, you, if you're if you curious, if you're still on the fence, yeah. go watch Ghost in the Shell first. Which the original. I, I'm one of those people, I was never that crazy about Ghost Nor in the Shell. Nor was I. I think it's okay. Nor was I, but I thought it was better than this. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. It also had but, the advantage of nailing this same material but I 20 think, years ago. I think if you don't know anything about the original Ghost in the Shell, you don't care. Uh, you don't care about the white the the, the 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 whitewashing, if you will, depending on how you feel about that. And you just want to watch, like, you know, hour and a half, two hours of, like, sci-fi action with Scarlett Johansson being hot. This is fine. You'll be fine. You'll watch it and go, I didn't think I was as bad as everybody says it was. Sure. Okay. It, it, for you, it is. Yeah. For me, it was. I was like, whatever. I don't care. It's fine. I'm not going to watch it again, but yeah. it is what it is. I really didn't care at all for Michael Pitt playing Hideo here. Uh, I, I just, who I, I, Michael I, I'm Pitt more and, not play a guy named Hideo. I am more and more Hideo. losing my fandom for Pitt, which at one point was strong and late more and more. I'm like, yeah. I just don't think I like you as an actor anymore. Juliette Binoche was Juliette good, Binoche but Juliette Binoche, Binoche, Binoche is good in everything. Yeah, she's, she's I just great. wish she were in a better movie than Michael this. Wincott is an appearance in this. Tricky was in a deleted scene, which is, uh, yeah. you know, that's interesting and even more interesting that there's no deleted scenes on the disc. Huh. <laughs> there's a couple EPKs that, well, you know, come on, like not EPKs. I'm sorry, like documentaries. Also uh, featuring the guy who plays uh, Euron in the latest uh, season of Game of Thrones. One interesting thing they did do though, the from. dubbed voices for these characters in the Japanese release, they got the original voice actors for Ghost in the Shell to come in and, and hey, do. Hey, great for them! I'm like, glad they're nice. getting a gig. 
But, you know. But overall, you're like, this is, you could do better. You want to see a, a better Scarlett Johansson film, watch Under the Skin, you know. Sure. It's like, so, not for everyone, but it sure was for me. Well, that brings us to the end of this week's Digital Noise. Once again, I'd like to thank Marco, my my uh, loquacious t- uh, co-host. Thank you for letting me ramble on. Believe <laughs> me, a few beers from now, I'll be very quiet. Well, you, you ramble on so informationally. Oh, thank you. Yes. Uh, I, we will be back. I have some things I want to tell you about now. <laughs> you oh, Americans. Wait, sorry. I'll, I'll wait until you guys uh, fin- go off for you. You Americans, you're always, just let me say this, <laughs> and I just want to say something. Well, you're dead now so <laughs> shut up <laughs> hey i am an american i resemble that remark uh i'll be back in another week i think maybe week and a half with another show with joe originally he was scheduled to go first but he had a rough week so it didn't happen ah, so well. we'll have some slightly older releases there but then marco again i know you're just dying will you please hire someone else to come in and be another well, digital makes, person? hey at least you i did at least I didn't have to watch Devil's Domain. So make That's somebody true. else watch that. But you have to watch The Circle next. So. Oh, for fuck's sakes. Whatofus.net has been your one-stop shop for all things geek for years. But there's a side to them many of you have never heard. The subscription side. Subscribe and listen to great podcasts like The Breakfast Pub, The Original Gentleman, and the Watch a Movie With Us series. Head on over to oneofus.net and don't forget your towel.